our species, Homo sapiens, have evolved for about four billion years by one set of rules, uh, which, is which are random mutation and natural selection. We are turning a corner on our evolutionary process. And now, from this point, for as long as we exist on this planet, or on any other planet, or in space, or anywhere else, and I'll link that back to Stanley Kubrick, we are going to evolve by a new set of rules, which are guided manipulation and guided selection. And the implications of that for our species are absolutely fundamental. So let me just then uh, take a step back. One of the reasons why all of us love Stanley Kubrick is what he did is he imagined a future. But it was a future that took pieces of the present and projected them to think about where we were uh, going to go. I think everybody, most people in this room, I'm sure, have seen uh, 2001. And I was talking with Rita this morning where Siri uh, was asking her all kinds of unanswerable questions. But we can all, from, the, from where we are now, uh, we can see where, and we're in San Francisco, where artificial intelligence is going. I was giving a talk yesterday at Google, and I said, everybody in this room, in your lifetime, you will be having a 20-minute wonderful conversation about philosophy. And about 20 minutes into the conversation, you're going to say, oh my god, I forgot I'm talking to my car. <laughs> because artificial intelligence, our brains are relatively consistent. Our brains are designed for linear thinking. Uh, and it's a very good idea to have a brain designed for linear thinking if you're living on the savanna. And your parents say you should run when you see a lion. It's good to say, well, that's a, that's a good lesson. I'm going to follow it. And when I see a lion, I'm going to run. And I'm going to tell my kids when they see a lion, they're going to run. It's actually it's, it's very smart to have a linear brain for survival. But we live in an exponential age. And what does it mean to live in an exponential age? Well, there's parts of it um, that everybody understands intuitively. Everybody understands intuitively now that there's a thing called Moore's Law, which means that computing power roughly doubles every two years, and it has for, uh, for decades. And even if you've never heard of Moore's Law, you understand what it means because you have your iPhone, whether you're at 7 or 6. I hope you don't have a Samsung uh, Galaxy 7. <laughs> if you do, um, we, have a special, we have a special bag, or at least turn it off. Um, but you have an expectation that next year, your iPhone's going to be faster. It's going to be smaller. It's going to be smarter, because we've internalized Moore's Law. But what does it mean if there's a Moore Law for biology, or there's something faster than Moore's law for biology. How many people have Yahoo accounts? It raises, raise your hand. So those of you with Yahoo accounts, you just had this very frightening experience of recognizing that, uh, that your email, even from a, what you thought was a trusted company, and maybe a trusted company, was entirely hackable, and that all of your personal information now is somewhere. And so we've also internalized that information technology systems are hackable. But what does it mean that biology is becoming hackable? Well, let's take a, take a step back. In 2003, the Human Genome Project uh, came to its completion. 
and it had to sequence the first genome had taken about 13 years and cost about a billion dollars. Today, to sequence a genome costs $1,000 and takes a few days. Within five years, it'll cost $100 and take a few hours, and within 10 years, it'll take minutes and cost essentially nothing. So what does it mean that we've sequenced the, the genome? What it means is that we've turned biology into an information technology, because that's what it is. That's what sequencing the genome is. It's code, and we are code. And it's very, very difficult. And there are many people, spiritual people, um, who think that the human being is infinitely complex. And I can understand that. And then there are other people, and I probably am more in, the, in this camp, who feel that human beings are, are uh, single-cell organisms gone wild. And we can understand a single-cell organism pretty well. And so if we can understand a single-cell organism pretty well, we can understand simple organisms like roundworms pretty well, so well that we can make computer programs that replicate their behavior perfectly. And, if, and our computing systems, we talked about the rise of AI and computing power. Like our brains are like this. Our computing power is like this. Right now, any, all, any of our brains is far more complex than the most complex, the most sophisticated computer in the world. And maybe that'll be the case 10 years from now. It won't be the case 20 years from now. And when that computer becomes faster than one brain, maybe we have 10 years, maybe we have five years, maybe we have two years until computer systems become faster than the collective collectivity of all of the brains of everyone on Earth. And it's a J-curve, and so it doesn't stop. And so what does it mean that our system, that our biology has turned into an information technology? Well, let's take it through step by step what that is going to mean for the future of our species. And we can talk about baby making because that's a really important thing that we do. That's how we, we pass on our code to the next generation. When my last book, Genesis Code, uh, came out, um, it was featured in Cosmo, Cosmopolitan Magazine. And the reason for that is I was at a party in New York, and I met Joanna Coles, the editor, and I said, hey, you should really do something on my new book. And she said, well, what's it about? And I said, it's about, I'd seen the, in the supermarket what they have on their covers. And I said, it's about the end of sex. She goes, oh my god, sex, we write about sex. <laughs> and she said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, it's my contention, my very strong uh, contention, um, that within a decade or two, human beings are going to stop conceiving of children through sex. Not everybody, but more and more people will stop conceiving of children uh, through sex. And instead, we will all have kids through in vitro fertilization and embryo selection. Many of you remember in the 1980s when the first so-called test tube baby was born. Named? What's that? Yes, Louise Brown. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to pick on you. You look so knowledgeable. Um, when, when Louise Brown was born and people said, this is crazy, this is an abomination, this is a sin against nature, and now everybody accepts that IVF is something that's normal and, and, and healthy and, uh, and safe. 
So what does it mean? So right now, we have IVF, and we have a process called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, or PGD, or PGS, uh, pre-implantation genetic selection. And what it means is you, you extract an egg from a woman, fertilize those eggs, and then screen those eggs for single gene mutation diseases. You can also screen for gender, hair color, and eye color. But as we learn more and more of understanding the genome, and we're going to understand the genome more and more, uh, because increasingly everybody is going to have their genome sequenced. And why is that going to be? Because we are moving from a, general, a system of general medicine, and Swami Ananda and I were just at a conference in San Diego a few days ago talking about this, uh, we're going to move from a system of general medicine to personalized medicine. And so general medicine means you have a headache and you take a Tylenol. Personalized medicine means that, well, before you take a Tylenol, you check with your genome to see whether you're one of the people who may die from taking a Tylenol, and it's good to know that. And any drug that you take, with lots of cancer medications, have 30% efficacy. That means 70% non-efficacy taking these poisonous drugs into our bodies. And it will, seem, it will be malpracticed to experience general medicine when it will be possible through your genetic code and, and algorithmic medicine to understand who you are, what kinds of medications, what kind of treatments, what kind of foods you will best respond to. So we'll have millions, hundreds of millions, and ultimately billions of people who, who will have their genomes sequenced. And what will that mean? Well, we'll have billions of sequence, and we'll have billions of examples of how people experienced their lives. How tall were they? How old were they when they got some genetic uh, diseases? What kind of abnormal genetic abnormalities did they have? What was their IQ? And through all of these things, we will move from understanding single gene mutations, which are relatively rare, where there's an on-off switch, to much more complex polygenic traits, polygenic diseases like type 1 diabetes and coronary heart disease, but also polygenic traits like height. There's not one height gene. You're not tall because you have a, a, a neck like a, a giraffe. You're tall because you have a bunch of things that are tall. And intelligence and many, many other things. Anything where there's, that has a genetic foundation, we are going to understand pretty well. And so what does that mean? Well, when you go back to IVF and embryo selection, and when you're screening those early stage embryos, rather than just knowing those few things that I mentioned before, we're going to know a lot. And so people will be able to select, first to select out genetic diseases, and we will very quickly eliminate many genetic diseases, uh, and then to select in, in jurisdictions where it's legal and people are comfortable with that. But we will have, in some places, people will choose height, they'll choose IQ, they may choose athletic ability, and there's always a balance between nature and nurture, but whatever your view, whether, whether nature is 80% or 50%, it's pretty darn important. So we're going to be making those kinds of decisions which will have a fundamental impact on the future of our, of our species. The second thing um, will be, right now, average male ejaculation has hundreds of millions of sperm. But in women creating eggs, it's a much smaller number. The average is 15. But using stem cell technology that already works in animals, we're going to be able uh, to take blood cells or skin cells, turn those into stem cells, induced stem cells, 
those stem cells into egg cells and egg cells into eggs. So rather than choosing from 15 fertilized eggs, we're going to choose from 100, 1,000. And again, the cost of sequencing will move towards zero. And what's the, what is the range if you're going to have 1,000 or 100, let's say, potential kids? What's the range of height between kids that you may naturally have? What's the range of IQ? What's the range of health outcomes? And then we'll even be able to, and this is going to freak you all out, um, mate early stage embryos with other early stage embryos. So a three-month-old embryo can have a child with another three-month-old embryo. And so we could go through a 1,000 years of evolution in one year. And think about that. Think about what that, about what that means for eliminating terrible diseases, um, but also for making other kinds of decisions that we will be faced with as a, a species. And in the third phase of this, again, something, all of these are technologies that in one form or another already exist, uh, is precision gene editing. So who here, raise your hand, who here has heard of CRISPR? So CRISPR is a new tool for precision gene editing. Just imagine you're sitting at your computer with a Microsoft Word and there's a sentence and you see a letter you want to change, you put the cursor there and you eliminate that letter and you type something else. And we can do that with genetic code. Our genetic code, food, animals, and the level of experimentation is it's mind-boggling what, is, uh, what is, uh, is happening now with, with the use of this precision gene. Everybody, when you go home, you should do a little bit of research on CRISPR uh, because it's an invention along the lines at the level of importance for our species as harnessing steam power or the internet. I mean, it's, it's really, it's at that level. It's, it's much bigger than all things, a lot of things that we think, wow, that's really important, like jet travel. This is bigger than that. So I hope that everybody will, will study up because you'll, you'll be learning uh, more and more about it. And immortality, my new book, Eternal Sonata, is a novel, um, but it's about this, about hacking, uh, hacking immortality. And lifespan is another thing that, we're, that is going to be seen as far more variable uh, than it is. In, in the beginning, it will be uh, we're going to understand the genetic fingerprint of aging. And there are, I think everybody knows this. Uh, people who are like these people who are in their hundreds who drink and smoke and have done all these things that you're not supposed to do. But why do they live so long? Because they have genetics to live to... 95, you can get there, maybe even 100, you can get there with lifestyle and doing the right thing. To get beyond that, it's your genetics. But if we understand that, eventually we're going to be able to select for people who can live long and healthy lives and potentially even use CRISPR and do precision gene editing uh, to make people so that you're, everybody wants this. You want to live as long as you can healthy and then have that be the end. Nobody wants to to be in a terrible state for 10 or, 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 or 20 years. And there are new drugs uh, that are coming online. I don't know if anybody here is a type 2 diabetic um, taking metformin, um, but it is, it's a diabetes drug because one of the primary drivers of aging is the balance on a cellular level between uh, cells using energy uh, for growth and repair. And so when the people, when the cell feels like it is in a, in a situation of calorie restriction, it harnesses repair, and that extends life. And that's one of the reasons many of you may have seen the story about the guy in Israel who's having his bar mitzvah at 113. Uh, but he was a, a Holocaust survivor who was in the Lodz ghetto. 
And people say, isn't it incredible that this guy, he had this traumatic experience, and he still lived to 113, when in fact, he lived to 113 because he had that experience. Because on a cellular level, he was near starvation, and his cells rallied, which is something that's built in uh, to, our, uh, to our species. In the book, um, it's, again, it's a novel, but in the book, I reference other things. So blood transfusions, uh, research done at Stanford, where they took an old mouse and a new mouse, and they just they connected their, their bloodstreams. And the old mouse became younger. The, the mouse's organs, its thinking, its skin, and the young mouse became older. So what will it mean? In my book, I talk about self-transfusions. You store blood when you're 20 and culture that blood. And when you're 60, you have a transfusion with your own blood. And so there are all kinds of, of new technologies that are going to be, uh, they're going to be uh, coming online. And I certainly firmly believe that the first person to live to 150 has, has already been, been born. And so all of these things that we think are fixed are not fixed. That we're going to start thinking about biology in the way that we think of as information technology. If there's some new device in information technology, you think it's cool, but it doesn't change your view of the world. And that's where we're going to be going with, uh, with uh, biology. And it's going to be driven forward by competition within societies and between societies, um, but also uh, by just normalization, that people will get used to the things I was talking with Rita this morning. And we're just looking around the kitchen. What are all these technologies where people thought we're going to ruin everything? Like the horseless carriage? What are we going to do with the horses? Or the washing machine? I mean, just the, but all of these technologies will just become the way we live. But that doesn't mean that there aren't fundamental ethical issues and moral issues about equity, who will have access to these technologies, about diversity, our protection of our greatest strength as a species, our greatest survival skill uh, is our diversity. And things change, and somebody who's undervalued at one moment could be extremely valued in the next moment. I was talking with somebody yesterday and I was saying that it could be that as our computers get smarter and smarter, the people now who we think are really smart, maybe not that smart. We don't maybe not need those skills anymore. But people who have an emotional intelligence that computers will have a hard, harder time replicating, maybe those are going to be the people that we need. But right now, if somebody's really good at, at computer coding, or some, we, we put them on a pedestal, and, and we should, but if somebody is a very intuitive, emotional human being, certainly they're not as wealthy as the coder. But it may be that things will change, and we need to think about, about our diversity as a species, and how do we value that? And how do we make sure that people aren't selecting against it um, when in the future these may be skills that we, that we need um, very much? And that brings me uh, finally um, to the novel. And one of the reasons I write nonfiction um, but I also write novels, is that these issues are just tremendously complex. And we can talk about them, we can talk about the issues, but we are humans. And as Stanley Kubrick has shown, we learn through stories. Sitting around a fire, telling each other stories, internalizing things. And I hope, if you have the chance, um, that you will read Eternal Sonata, because I'm trying to imagine what will it mean when these changes, these changes that are so complex, so fundamentally challenging, 
show up among us. So it's a, it's a thriller, um, but it has, to, it has love and um, it's a love story. And it, what it tries to do is bring up these issues in the context of a story of a global struggle to control the science of extreme human life extension. And then there's an Israel angle and a Jewish angle, but I won't spoil it. So with that, we don't have a lot of time, um, but I'd love to, to answer your um, questions. There, yes. You touch lightly on the fact that there are moral and ethical issues. Yeah. You didn't really go into them. Yeah. Uh, living to 150 or to 200. Yeah. How is this going to impact our planet? Our planet is finite. Our resources yeah. are finite. Yeah, you know, I get asked this a lot, and it's a very important question. And for me, the ethical and moral issues are the most important piece of it. So I hope I, you, I didn't downplay those. Um, um, but it's, it's mixed. On one hand, um, the, uh, right now, we have all of the resources that we need to feed everybody on Earth and then some. We have the resources to house and clothe everybody on Earth and then some. We choose not to do it based on our moral precepts. And we're perfectly comfortable with things that maybe we shouldn't be comfortable with. That right now, the average person in Central African Republic is living in a civil war, or Haiti, where people are living in a hell. Um, and we choose. So I think that we will, whatever choices that we have about equity in the future, we have those choices now. And the second point, I would say, uh, is certainly human population is moving towards a 9 billion in around uh, 2050. But then it's going to drop pretty significantly. And the reason it's going to drop is that the numbers are going up in places that don't have access to education, don't have access to health care. Uh, but in the places where they do, uh, birth rates are plummeting. People who have education, and, and certainly in most countries of the world, the United States is a small exception, but I spend a lot of time in Asia. Singapore, Korea, Japan, most places in Europe, they're not even close to having replacement level kids. And so I think that when people ha who have access to these technologies will be in that category and won't be having a huge number. Because I'm not, it's a real concern and there's many people who think differently than me, but I'm not that concerned. And think of all the wisdom that we get from all these people who've lived 150 who can guide us, who can help us explore these moral issues. It's a great question. Is this the new eugenics? Uh, it's, it, and I think we have to, um, embryo selection, for example, is limited in Germany. And the reason is because they, from their experience, they have a lot of concerns. And some people have called this liberal eugenics. Is it eugenics if you're going through IVF and PGD and you know that one of your um, potential children is going to have Huntington's disease and die before they're 10 years old and you choose not to implant that one embryo because you have 10 choices. Is that eugenics? Probably technically, yes. Well, maybe, but you're talking about, I'm going to pick my child's height. No, right. What hair color yes. They're not their own person anymore. They're, they're, they're yeah, I think it's, it's a very, I would not counter that. I think that's a very real question. And this is the reason I start with that disease state is because we're going to test that disease state. Then we'll test more disease states. And then in the exact same process that we'll use to understand that, we're going to have a lot more information. And some people, some jurisdictions will say, we think it should be illegal to even know what the, the IQ will be, what the height will be. And in some places, it will be legal. And some people will travel to places to have kids because they want that information. And some people, like today, will say, well, I just don't want to know. I want to leave it to God or to chance or whatever. So 
I, I wouldn't counter your contention at all. I think it's a very serious, very legitimate question. And that's why the big thing that I'm pushing for is what I'm calling a species-wide dialogue on the future of human genetic engineering. This stuff, it's neither good nor bad. It is. And we need to all be part from people from, with a religious background, from whatever background, whatever perspective. We need to be part of a, con a conversation. You know, I'm not saying I have an answer, but I was speaking last week someplace, and I said, we're going to do a vote on whether you're for or against fire. And think about whether you're for or against fire. And I didn't do the vote. People were thinking, well, I guess I'm for fire for security and cooking, and I'm against fire uh, for arson and forest fires. And it's just, but the point is, fire is. This it is, and the question is, how are we going to manage it? But I think that perspective is, is very legitimate, and there's no, there's no complete answer. The answer, in my view, is not to ban everything, but it's also not in San Francisco. There's a transhumanist movement to say just everything should be permissible. That shouldn't be the outcome either. Yeah? As a futurist, do you think our planet has a future? Well, definitely our planet has no future because the sun is going to blow up in about five billion years. Um, so that is, is pretty certain. Um, in the near term, though, um, I think that we need to be really careful because our, our planet, it's, it's complex and we can ruin it. And they're all kind. So I, I think we have a future, but we don't want to expose ourselves. I mean, we, our species has come into being within a certain historical set of environmental circumstances. And those can change. And species have continually gone extinct. Species that were pretty cool, like the dinosaurs. I mean, they, they were pretty confident. And so I, I think it, it definitely could. And part of that has to do with our own behavior. And we need to be very careful uh, about managing this planet to the best of our abilities. Thank you all so much. I will be down in the bookstore and look forward to answering any, any questions. Thank you.